I'm preaching to you from 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 20. No, I'm not going to read all those verses. Sometimes when you go and visit a doctor, you don't need to know how he knows stuff. You just need to know what he needs you to know. Well, I'm not going to, you're just going to have to give me some cred. Trust me that I've read these verses, that I could be more righteous and maybe read them to you and make ourselves feel really good about what we do on Sunday. Or let's just read a representative section, and then you give me the benefit of the doubt that these verses have been studied, and let me tell you a story. Because in this section of Scripture, it starts with a man loving the Messiah and ends with that same man being humiliated, laying naked before the Lord because he hates the Messiah with all of his might. If you were not David in last week's passage with Gordon, you are certainly not David in this passage. Too often we're like Saul. Quite often we find ourselves like Jonathan. Let's be Jonathan-like-ish and give all praise and glory to the Messiah, the one appointed by Christ, the one ordained. You'll see the difference, but let me read you a representative text from 1 Samuel 18, you're going to have to open your Bibles or look in your phone. We do not have it up here for you today. This is the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. As soon as Saul had finished speaking to David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not even let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe and gave it to David, gave him his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing uh, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women, women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as David did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of thousands, and he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. 
And when Saul saw that he had great success, he now stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Saul has issues. He's got problems. I mean, he started off as God's anointed himself, but he's become wayward. He's rebelled. And now the prophet wants nothing more to do with him. God's spirit wants nothing more to do with Saul. Both of them have withdrawn in their place. An evil spirit has come. Saul has one mission. He's supposed to love God and God's people by taking out the Philistines. But that evil empire is dominating the land. They have this giant who's causing them great trouble, and Saul is just looking pathetic. Maybe his son has more together than he does, but Saul, he's got issues. But there's this overlooked, odd guy, the son of Jesse from the little town of Bethlehem that kind of arrives on the scene, and Saul notices his, his courage. He notices his faith. He notices his, his recklessness sometimes because he has faith. And he has watched him now go and fight Goliath and win. He's seen his incredible courage and skill and leadership now as, as he leads Israel to go and pursue the Philistines as they're fleeing. He looks at this guy and notices his, his abilities not only with the sword but with the guitar as he's able to play his harp or lyre or whatever it is and and Saul, who's all messed up on the inside because of the evil spirit in his own evil heart, is, is soothed. And Saul is intrigued by this guy. In 1 Samuel 7, 16, it says Saul loves him. Saul has affection for David. He starts this chapter with affection for David. Interest in David. Oh, it's a selfish affection based upon what David might be able to do for him. But Saul sees it. Saul desires it. Saul wants to manipulate and control it. He likes it all around him. So Saul then does what Samuel said he would do. The king would draft men's sons to serve in his royal court. Saul refuses to let David go home. David is now Saul's boy, his warrior, ready to serve him. And all should be good as long as he knows his place. I'm king. You may be some special person in the eyes of God, and the Lord may be with you. But we know who's daddy. We know who has the first chair. It's me. Well, all is going great. It looks like we are heading in the right direction. The Lord is with David. He is serving Saul well with his harp. He is serving Saul well with his sword. He is going out there and winning wars. And it's not just Saul who loves him, but Jonathan loves him. Saul's son looks at this guy and says, wow, what courage in his fight with Goliath. I like to think that Jonathan may have picked up his sword and gone and run after the Philistines with Jonathan. Let's go, game on. He notices we have a lot in common. We're both uh, men of faith. We're both men of courage. We're both kind of reckless. We both have leadership skills. And we both end up doing that, which our dad should do, but it's not. So Jonathan looks at him. 
And Jonathan should be a little leery, maybe, if he was just a natural man. For Jonathan probably knows about his dad's character and his conduct. Jonathan probably realizes that Samuel has already said, I got a better king than you, Saul. Jonathan probably knows that uh, Saul has not only ruined it for himself, but also for the family. There will be no son of Saul on the throne. And he's probably putting the pieces together going, there's something special about this overlooked son from the little town of Bethlehem. Why is Saul weary? Because Saul says, this is my chair. I'm first fiddle. Why should Jonathan, if he was a natural man, be, be leery? Because this is supposed to be my throne. I'm the prince. But the text tells us that something had happened to Jonathan. And if you look in the Hebrew, it would tell you it's a passive verb. His soul was knit to David. Somebody else did something to Jonathan, and Jonathan was just the passive recipient of it. His soul was made kindly towards David. That which was natural to oppose the threat was now unnatural to the man whose soul was knit by the Lord to David. Then come the active verbs. And because his soul was knit to David, he loved him. He loved him as a soul brother. And Jonathan comes up to David one day and he swears a covenant before him. That's right. He enters into this relationship with David where I will look out for your interests. I swear allegiance to you. Will you swear allegiance to me, please? And in this unbelievable gesture of humility and honor, the prince takes off his royal robe and gives it to David. He takes off his armor, his sword, his belt, gives it to David. And David now owns the, the, the most important two swords in the kingdom, that of Goliath and that of, of Jonathan. They swear covenant to one another. As Jonathan, in effect, you can see this in a later chapter, where he thinks what will happen is David will be the man and I will be there right with him. David will be the Batman and I will be the Robin. And I can't wait for that to happen because I am more than satisfied to see in you what God is doing and I will take second fiddle while you have first chair and lead the orchestra. So now we have Saul loving David, Jonathan loving David. It says Saul's servants, which are probably his messengers and his soldiers and his spies and his assassins. You'll get it. They love David. All the citizens of Israel love David, and especially the lady folk. They're like the cheerleaders. David goes off and has his way with the Philistines. As he's coming back, it says in all the cities, not just one, wherever he went, it was like the, the, the United States marching through Paris as they had dominated the Germans. And the people are there cheering, and here are the ladies. And they're showing up, and they are singing and dancing and playing instruments, and they're giving Saul the honor that he deserves. They talk about their king first. Oh, you're the man. Thousands are killed by you. Woo, Saul. Saul, 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 Saul. And David, you, you're the man. You're the man's man. You have killed 
tens of thousands. And this is just great because the people are rejoicing in what God had done through King and through this new overlooked son from a little town of Bethlehem that we know is a Messiah, an anointed one. And all's good until Saul starts realizing, whoa, more honor, more glory, more applause is going towards David than towards me. Was it starting to click in Saul's head? This is the one whom the Lord is with. This is the one who kills giants. This is the one who has success wherever he goes. Someone better than me has been ordained by God, not of my family. Saul has affection for David at first. But you know what overrules his affection? His self-adoration and his love. Nobody messes with this king. You fight me, I come back harder. This is my throne. This is my crown. This is my robe. And you're not my son. The text tells us that Saul is angry. It tells us that he's filled with displeasure. It tells us that he's filled with envy and jealousy and suspicion. The text tells us that one day, David's playing his harp, serving the king. And the evil spirit causes him to rage or rave. Now, it's not like the evil spirit comes upon a person and makes them do what they don't want to do. It's more like the evil spirit is like steroids for an athlete. You know, we've heard of roid rage. The idea that when a person has a wicked heart and when a person has... Uh, anger on the inside, but when they are under the influence of, of roids, of steroids, that all of a sudden they can become guilty of doing things that they might not have imagined they would do, but it's not like something was forced upon them. It just encouraged and highlighted that which was within to come out. Saul is consumed with self-love. He's consumed with anger and hatred. And the Bible tells you that hatred on the inside and anger on the inside is just murder on the inside. Jesus says that. And in this case, the murder on the inside became a murderous action on the outside as he now hurls a spear at God's anointed. He tries to take out God's Christ, God's chosen king from the little town of Bethlehem. He's unsuccessful. The text then tells us what? He is consumed with fear. Now, you'll see this three times in those three chapters that I mentioned. Saul goes from fear to fear and awe to even greater fear. It's interesting, as you see, and also you know, there's lots of times where it says the Lord's with David, the Lord's with David, the Lord's David. There's lots of, of sets of threes. But the picture is Saul just continues to grow more miserable, more angry, more jealous as he sees, this is my throne. You can't have it. I'm taking you out. I can't win. Hey, this is my throne. You can't have it. I'm taking you down. I can't win. And over and over it happens as Saul just refuses to bow the knee and ever take second fiddle. This belongs to me and you can't have it. 
I liked you and appreciated you when you were around, when you were making life better for me, when you were serving me, when you were my tame little Messiah, that you were like the genie in the lamp that I stroked and told you what to do. I liked that, David. This other thing that's happening that is requiring me now to bow the knee to you? No way, buckaroo. It's just not happening. There's only one king in this town. His name is Saul. Well, Saul can't get rid of David yet. Um, too many people like him. So he... I think gives him a downgrade. At one point, it looks like he was over all of Saul's forces. Now he's just over a thousand. So he sends him out to war. Why does he do so? Well, at worst case, the Lord's still with him. He defeats the Philistines, and I have less of them to worry with. Oh, but maybe, maybe he'll falter, and they'll take him down, and I will be rid of this overlooked Messiah from a little town of Bethlehem. It doesn't happen. David keeps winning because the Lord is with him. Saul tries to figure out other ways to go to war against David. Saul uh, has a daughter. He promises her to David. That's kind of funny, because he'd already promised his daughter to whoever beat Goliath. He promised wealth to whoever beat Goliath. He promised a tax-free household for the man who ever beat Goliath. David has beaten Goliath a long time ago, but still has no money and still has no daughter. Saul comes to him and says, would you like my daughter? David says, yeah, I'd like your daughter. That sounds great. I don't really deserve her. I'm just a humble man. Saul says, you can have her. David goes out and fights some wars, comes back. Saul doesn't give her to her. Saul gives that first daughter to another man. Saul took the betrothed bride of David and humiliated him publicly by giving to another man. A little later on, Saul offers his daughter Michal or Michael or Michelle or however you're supposed to say that, M-I-C-H-A-L, to David. She loves him. I don't know what the importance of this is, but this is the only time in the Old Testament where a, a woman is said to have loved a man. Just interesting. She saw. So now Saul, his son, his, his daughter, all the citizens, all this, everybody just loves David. There's something special about this guy. David says, would you like her to be your wife? Well, he actually doesn't say that to David because he can't talk to David because David doesn't trust Saul anymore, so he sends servants to do this. The servants say, would you like? David says, look, I'm a poor man. I, I'm not going to be able to pray, pay the bride price. I'm not an honored man right now. I'm kind of being humiliated. The servants say, oh, no, 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 trust us. Trust him. We got this. This is good. All you have to do is go fight a fight and come back with 100 Philistine body pieces. It's the PG version. Are you kidding me? Okay, game on. So David and his men go out. They fight against the Philistines. They win. 
with the sword and the surgical instruments, and they come back with 200, I don't know what kind of igloo coolers they were carrying. I don't know how you imagine this sight, but I just can imagine Saul's face as David shows up with 200 body parts. Saul at this point is like, I got to give him my wife, and he does. But Saul's not done fighting yet. Saul calls a secret cabinet meeting. He summons Jonathan and all Jonathan's servants together and say, we've got to take him out. He's got this hankering, this thinking that maybe Jonathan doesn't abhor David like I do, and I need to call his bluff and see, who is Jonathan allied to? Does he love father and mother more than David, or would he be one that says he loves the Messiah more than he loves father, mother, brother, or sister? Jonathan makes it very clear. My allegiance is with the Messiah. My allegiance is with the Christ. My allegiance is with the ordained one. My allegiance is with your enemy. Saul can't win. In the text, it tells us that at this point, he becomes David's enemy. Now, it wasn't that David was at enmity with Saul. David will have the chance to take out Saul many times and will not do so. As a matter of fact, David will keep forgiving Saul and showing back up in his presence and dodging spears again. But Saul becomes David's enemy. That's why you've heard me over the last few months call Saul the Antichrist. If David is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, and Saul is his enemy, Saul is the anti-David, the anti-Messiah, the anti-Christ. And he will not take a knee before the Messiah. Jonathan promises David, Dad's repented. I've, I've preached to him. I've defended you. I've admonished him. I've even worked out reconciliation, and Saul has repented. David hears, and David comes back into the king's court again. David is found again playing his instrument in the presence of Saul. What happens? Kill David. Part two. The evil spirit comes upon Saul. He throws another spear. David escapes and runs for his life. He goes back home. Saul's henchmen follow him. I don't know if, if Michael saw the van out beside the road with the tinted windows, but they were spying on his house. During the middle of the night, she helped him escape, and David runs to see Samuel. Saul is not yet done. Saul pursues. Well, not yet, Saul, because he has servants, he has messengers. So he sends these servants to Ramah, where Samuel is, where, where David is, and the messengers come to arrest David and to kill him, and they start prophesying. Something supernatural and ecstatic happened, and these people who are going to kill the Messiah begin to speak in tongues or something. I don't know what they did. Saul says, where are my messengers? What's going on? He sends a second group. The same thing happens to them. He sends a third group. The same thing happens to them. Saul, at this point, never learns. Like the coyote, and the, he just keeps running off those cliffs over and over again. Well, if you got to get something done, sometimes you have to just do it yourself. 
He now heads towards Ramah. He shows up, and what happens to Saul? The same spirit that caused the other people to prophesy causes Saul to prophesy. And then it tells us he lays naked night and day before the people and the Lord. How humiliating. How embarrassing. It's like in Psalm 2 language that Nathan read. Oh, kings, why are you plotting? Why are you scheming? Why are you saying, let us cast off the Lord's control over us? He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. This is, this is funny, maybe, because you really think you're going to defeat God and his Messiah? There is no way. Then he humiliates and mocks and speaks in derision. But Saul will not learn. Saul even talked with Jonathan one time, and he tempts Jonathan. This guy's going to cost you too much. It's like you've taken up your cross, and you've followed him, and you said, all to David, I surrender. And you have, you have, you have said, I'm going to be your disciple, and you're following. Don't you know that he's got your throne? He's got your crown? He's got your robe? He's got your glory? Jonathan looks at his dad and swears allegiance. He's got my heart, Dad. My soul is knit to him. I love him. And in essence is saying, he's got my allegiance. You don't. At that point, his dad picks up a spear and tries to pin him to the for that's what happens for those people who worship themselves. They become dangerous not only as they seek to take out God and his Messiah, but his disciples and his people and anyone else who gets in their way. Jonathan then flees and he ends up meeting with David one final time. And there they engage in an emotional covenantal ceremony as Jonathan swears allegiance to David. David swears allegiance to Jonathan. Jonathan says, I will serve you. I will listen to you. I will follow your guidance. I just, I need to ask one thing for you. Can you, I'm sitting here swearing to you now. I'm the converted one. I am the one ready to be your disciple. But will you love me and my household? To which David swears, I absolutely will. And when we get to the story of Methuselah, not Methuselah, Mephibosheth, you'll see David honoring his vow to love Jonathan and his household. I'm sure I skipped something without my notes, but you, got, you get the idea. I end with three thoughts. First, the will of God. It was the will of God for Samuel to know that there's another king. It was the will of God for Samuel to know you're supposed to go to Bethlehem. It was the will of God for Samuel to know it's going to be the youngest of Jesse's sons. It was the will of God for Samuel to adorn, or adorn, anoint or ordain David. Nothing was going to stop this. 
It was going to happen. God said, this is, he's my king. The Philistines might not like it. Goliath might not like it. Saul might not like it, but, but God likes it. I mean, we have all this conversation about free will. I'm not going to get into you about whether or not you have free will. We'll talk about that some other time. But God has free will. God is the one who makes plans, makes proclamations, and performs so that he can get what he wants. Nothing is going to stop this. Now, in God's plan, it was weird that David was going to have tribulation before the throne. And, but in God's plan, ultimately, he was going to get the throne. Ultimately, his people were going to prosper. They were going to understand wisdom, and they were going to have righteousness and peace and prosperity. God was going to bless his people through his Messiah. Nothing was going to stop it. David was that man. The Lord has a will, and he expressed it and was going to see it fulfilled. The same is true not only for the little M Messiah, but the big M Messiah. His name is Jesus Christ. From the days of Adam and Eve, there was going to be one who would come who would stomp Satan's head. In Noah's day, one was going to come who would be the ark and people would find their salvation from God's flood of judgment in him. In Abraham and Sarah's day, the day was going to come when God would have a specially supernatural son who would bless the nations. And someday there would be a father who would kill his son on Mount Moriah. In Moses' day, it was very, very clear that there was coming one who would be a prophet, that God would speak to him face to face. There would be a priest who would atone for all the sins of his people. And it becomes very clear throughout the prophets that he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to be born in a town of Bethlehem. He's going to be overlooked and despised, rejected of men, that he's going to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, and he's coming forth from a virgin. It's going to happen. You're not going to be able to stop it. All the forces of hell and all the kings of the world can scheme and plot against him, but God has a will. It's going to happen. Oh, God's will is weird because before the crown comes a cross, before the throne comes tribulation, he's going to be the suffering servant before he is the Lord and the king who reigns on high. But it's going to be good for his people. His people are going to be clothed in righteousness, followers of wisdom, enjoying peace and prosperity someday. This is what's going to happen. Nothing's going to stop it. And woe be the enemies of the Christ, whether they be Philistines or Goliath or Saul, whether they be Herods or Pharisees or scribes or elders. You can't stop this because there is a God. He has a will. It never changes. It has not yet been completely finished because he has plans for us that we have not yet seen, but there's no stopping this God in this text, you see there is a God with a will. You need to know that. Now, the next question is, what is your response? I'm so glad, Scott, when he led that song where it talks about, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake, Lord, have your way with me. Sometimes. 
never fully. Too often, I'm like Saul. I'm a foolish man with a will. I'm I'm desperate to clutch and hold on. I'm self-worshipping. And that's what you see in this text, the will of the self-worshipping fool. I have appreciation. I have interest. Can I own you? Can I manipulate you? Wait, you're messing now with my financial future. You're messing now with my hedonistic interests. You're messing now with my family's health. Wait, you're messing now with my church dreams. You're messing now with my patriotic national interests. Wait, other people are being exalted and I'm being overlooked. And pretty soon we start getting disenchanted. Oh, we like the Jesus Christ who serves us. But when that Jesus Christ says, you've got to be willing to serve me, Let's put your hands to the plow. Let's put your your neck in my yoke and follow my lead. Let's obey. We look at him and say, we're just not interested in that Jesus. And pretty soon we start seeing him as a threat. And we try to manipulate and barter. But what ends up happening is our love for ourselves results in an anger and a bitterness towards him. That which on the inside ends up coming out And before you know it, we are rebelling. We are wandering away. We are not repenting like Saul. We are getting further and further from the Jesus Christ who's going to win because it's the will of God for him to win. That's me more than I want to take credit for. I like the Jesus that serves me, but too often I'm not interested in saying all to Jesus I surrender. And even when I do say all to Jesus I surrender, I hardly mean it. But the good news is the same spirit that that attacked Jonathan's heart and knit his soul to David is the same spirit that comes to rebels like me and Saul and you. And he comes and does this work in our hearts. And once he starts this work in our hearts, he never finishes. He just keeps going at it, keeps going at it as we are these sinful saints that he will not let go. And he causes us now to more and more want to sing that song, Lord, I give you my heart. Give you my soul. Have my robe. Have my sword. Have my everything. And when we do so, we find that he was no threat. For he's a much better king of our lives than we will ever be. He's way more wise than we can ever imagine. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He wants what's best for us. And so how good it is when we find ourselves tenderized on the inside, realizing the natural man only wants to be first fiddle. But how do I know I'm a Christian? Not because I've made Jesus first fiddle and kept him there. Not because I want him as much as I should. I want to want him more than I do. Can I say that again, please? It's not that I want him like I should. I don't even want to want him like I should. 
but there's something inside me that wants to want him like I should. And that's weird. There's something about him that looks beautiful, that makes me want to covenant with him who has covenanted with me. So that's how we end this sermon. There is a God. There is a Messiah. They're going to win. The question is, will we bow the knee? Will we kiss the sun? I'm going to read this text one more time that Nathan read. But I'm going to change some words. Why do you people from Horizon Church rage? Why do you Sunday worshipers plot in vain? Why do you Christians set yourselves and take counsel together against the Lord and against Jesus Christ? Why in our hearts do we quite often say, let's burst their bonds apart, let's cast away their cords from us, let's not follow God's leadership? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds rebels in derision. He speaks to them in his wrath. He terrifies them in his fury. And he says, I've already established my king. and You're not that king. Jesus now speaks to you and says, the Lord's already said, I'm his son. The Lord has already said, I've begotten you. The Lord has already told me, I will make the nations your heritage. I will make the ends of the earth your possession. And the Lord has already told me that I am to break my enemies with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. David then speaks maybe to Saul. He speaks to me. Now, therefore, old Joe Franks, be wise. Be warned, you rulers on this earth. Serve the Lord with fear and reverence and awe. Rejoice with trembling. Go ahead and kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in his way. Yet his wrath is quickly kindled against his enemies. But blessed are all his friends who take refuge in him. Did you see that? Despite the rebellion of the king... The text ends in a call to repentance and free mercy for anyone who bows the knee. Despite the plotting and the scheming of the kings who deserve nothing but the fury of God, it ends with a call to kiss the son. Blessed are all, even you foolish kings, even Joe Franks, who bow the knee and take refuge in him. And so we end right now by recovenanting with God. One more time, and it won't be the last. I'd like you to take a couple minutes of silence. Ask the Lord where you've bartered with him, where you've manipulated him, where you haven't bowed the knee, where you're not satisfied with his leadership. Let him show that to you in your heart. Then don't beat yourself up. You are sinful. He, he hates sin. But kiss the sun. And then walk out of here blessed as you're taking refuge in him.